the Word of God. Father in heaven, this morning, as we look together at a glorious prophecy uttered by our Lord Jesus himself, a prophecy given to his own disciples, wherein he begins to reveal to them for the first time, but not the last time, that his mission is going to lead him to Jerusalem, where at the hands of the leadership, the religious leadership, he is going to suffer and die and be raised again on the third day. A glorious reminder, a glorious prophetic reminder from our divine incarnate Lord Jesus to his men that his declaration that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail is matched by a faithfulness in our Savior, committed to do what needs to be done, which he did, and that is to purchase this church, which he is, has, and will build until the day of his return. And we can have confidence that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was no unforeseen accident, it was no plan B, it was the very eternal plan of our true and living God, that Jesus had come to give his life for sinners and to be raised again on the third day. And this is the gospel we preach, that if anyone by God's grace through faith will entrust themselves unto the Lord Jesus in his perfect work, in his death for sin, in his resurrection unto life, that they will be washed of their iniquity, that they will be cleansed, they will be reconciled unto the true and living God forever to enjoy him, time without end. And here we see this prophetic spark of our Lord Jesus, the initial salvo, telling his men what he had come to do. A reality so overwhelming and vast to them that they did not even understand it until the Spirit later would grant them a realization of what Jesus was saying. It wasn't until Jesus was raised that they began to grasp the wondrous work of Jesus. They were expecting a Savior to set up a political kingdom. Instead, the Savior died, which shocked them, drove them into fear, confusion. So confused were they that when the women came and testified that they had seen Jesus raised, they could scarcely believe it. Some, like Thomas, doubted it altogether. And yet as the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost and He gave understanding and conviction, these men, along with all of your people, whom you redeemed throughout the ages, grasp now the reality 
of the death of Christ and his resurrection and why this is central to all human history, why this lies at the heart of our own salvation and the good gospel which we preach. May we rejoice unceasingly in the fulfillment of our Lord and Savior in his going to the cross and in his resurrection that his church might be built upon the rock of Christ and his work. Help us this morning to rejoice in this prophetic announcement that he was about to go to Jerusalem where he would suffer and die and be raised again on the third day. Would we not fail to marvel? Indeed, Lord, it seems so very true that the one great thing we should take away from this sermon that this text would require of us is that we would marvel and delight in your eternal purpose to send a Savior to save a people from their sins. And we ask that you would give us understanding and illumination of this text that would stir our hearts to delight and awe of the work of our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verses 21 to 23. Matthew chapter 16 and verses 21 to 23. Not sure where Matthew or Daniel are at, but uh, I think we're wanting to live stream. So I'll just keep preaching and they'll get that set up. Again, Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 23. Kurt, we have your Bible. Is Are you okay? You got a Bible? I'll get it to you later. Right now? Can you get Kurt his Bible? It's there in this area. If not, it's in the van. So maybe one of you. There we go. All right. We didn't wrinkle those pages. I think they were already wrinkled. So, All right. There you go. Again, Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 23. Now, in in the last few weeks together, we have been looking at Jesus' promise to build his church, declaring also that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. But now in our text before us this morning, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples and through their inspired writing later on to the church what he must do in order to lay the foundation to build his church. For the church is built upon the foundation of himself and his work. And how now he is revealing to his men the goal of his earthly ministry was his own suffering and death and resurrection on the third day. And dear beloved, please note this, that again, this is the very first time that Jesus has spoken plainly to his disciples about his impending death and resurrection. In fact, in Mark's parallel account of this prophetic announcement of Jesus to his men in Mark 8.32, Mark literally wrote these words about Jesus speaking to his men at this time. He writes these words, and he was stating the matter plainly. This is the first time he has told his men that the expectations that they had for Messiah were not what he or they expected. They were expecting a political 
deliverer. They were expecting one who would elevate Israel above all the nations at this time. But this is not why he came. He came to give his life on behalf of sinners. And so this morning, not only will we see Jesus prophesy and foretelling his death and resurrection, in fact, this is going to be a two-week sermon on this passage, but this morning we are going to see that it has always been God's plan that the Son might die for his people and be raised again the third day. And this is literally the foundational work of Messiah by which he lays the foundation of his own life for, for living on behalf of his people. He lays down the foundation of his own death, dying for their sins, and lays down the foundation of his resurrection wherein we have life for all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Yes, there are clear Old Testament prophecies which point to Messiah's death for sin and resurrection. But Jesus' disciples, along with basically all of Judaism, had missed this fact entirely that Messiah came to die, to give his life a ransom for many. But again, this is Jesus' first prophecy in a series of prophecies spoken by Jesus in his earthly ministry regarding his death and resurrection. And so this morning and next week, I want us to explore this particular prophecy, and then next week I want us to see Peter's response to this prophecy. And specifically, I want us to consider the very first part of verse 21 this morning, where we read these words, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. There's a lot of rich truth uh, embedded in this wonderful text. And so let's begin by reading. We're going to read Matthew 16, 21 to 23 in order to see the full context of our message both this week and next week. So let's read together. Starting in verse 21, we read, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he, and then Mark 8.31 adds these words, that he, the Son of Man, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And then Mark adds, And be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Then verse 22, But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But then he, Jesus, turned He turned around and seeing his disciples, this is also Mark, Mark 8.33, he turned away, uh, turned around, seeing his disciples, he rebuked and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. This morning, though, we want to look at this opening phrase in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, 
Jesus was, of course, fully aware of his own impending suffering and death, which is why he is making his announcement. Nevertheless, we need to understand very clearly that he did not shrink back from his mission. In fact, many people misunderstand Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he beseeches the Father that if there is another way, and then he adds this statement, which properly translated is, I have no will but your will. In other words, the Lord Jesus' will was to do the will of the Father, and the will of the Father was that he go to the cross as the Savior of the people that the Father was going to grant to the Son through his work upon the cross. And so literally knowing his suffering and death, out of love for his Father, out of love for his chosen people, Jesus pressed on in faithfulness toward that very goal for which he came into the world. As Jesus said of himself in Luke 19 verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And he has promised, as we've seen in recent weeks, to to build his church. And he has, and he is, and he will accomplish and complete that work from foundation to roof line on behalf of his people. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says of Jesus, and think about his faithfulness to his work to complete his mission of death and resurrection connected to his promise that he will build his church. And listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3.6. He says of Jesus that he is faithful as a son over his house whose house we are. Jesus will build his church, and that foundation of his building the church is his death and resurrection. And a part of his faithfulness in building his church was not only his resolve to go to the cross, it was also in preparing his disciples for his impending death and resurrection. For it was critical for their understanding, yes, largely understood after the fact, and for our understanding as well, that the work of Christ in his death and resurrection was no afterthought. So the Lord had to prepare his men and prepare us also as we read the scriptures. That understanding the text of Scripture through the Holy Spirit, we might grasp the full meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. Why did he have to die? There were not any other means of salvation that God would have provided. This is the only means. This is the best means of God redeeming his people. The Savior had to die. However, it's interesting that even though, as we've noted, Jesus repeatedly told them that this was going to happen, that he was going to suffer and die and be raised again, they simply at this time lacked understanding. They lacked perspective. They lacked the illumination and understanding which would be later granted to them by the Holy Spirit. An understanding which they would later explain to us in their writings. The understanding of why Jesus had come. Why Jesus had to die and be raised again on the third day. So that we too as them might grasp through the work of the Spirit and understand Jesus' prophecy regarding his death and resurrection. So that we can see this was Jesus' mission all along. 
Now I want to show you a very interesting passage in John chapter 2 where we see an example of before the fact the disciples didn't understand what Jesus meant when he spoke of his death and resurrection. He spoke it plainly. He was very clear and yet it was so outside of the field of their understanding of what Messiah would do and accomplish and how he would do that and why he would do this that that just the concept of, of Jesus dying and being raised again from the dead just eluded the full grasp of their understanding. And we see this very clearly later on again as Jesus was crucified and, and they were not even really looking for the resurrection even though Jesus spoke of it repeatedly. So an example in John chapter 2 verses 19 to 22 of this very event, this very kind of thing happening where his men didn't get it ahead of time but did understand it by the grace and power of the Spirit after the fact. This is early on in Jesus' ministry, this account in John chapter 2 where Jesus had just cleansed the temple for the first of two times. And when the Jewish people in leadership asked Jesus what he was doing when he cleansed the temple, what sign he was showing them, and by what authority Jesus had cleansed the temple. Because you remember, uh, the, the temple market was filled up with money changers and the selling of animals and all of that was unclean as far as honoring the temple. And Jesus had the zeal of the house of the Lord in his heart. And so he drove out this, this marketplace from the temple courts. And this is what Jesus said in response to these men who asked him, what he was doing and why and what sign he was showing them and by what authority he did these things. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. Now, what was Jesus referring to? The physical temple there of Herod? No, he was talking there about his own body. He says, destroy this temple. That's the cross, and they would destroy that temple. He would hand himself over into their hands and they would crucify him destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's interesting in Scripture, the Bible talks about the Father raising the Son, and the Spirit raising the Son, and Jesus raising Himself. This is a Trinitarian work, the resurrection of Jesus. And so John comments there, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So, and listen to this, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. So it was, a, it was an after-the-fact reality. Jesus told them many times of his death and resurrection, but it never congealed, it never clicked. The illumination, the understanding, the conviction was not there. The perspective of why Messiah had to die and be raised again from the dead just was not in their ability to grasp. They needed to understand that he hadn't come only to teach or show them the Father through his life or provide some victory for Israel. He had come to save. And this is the means of his salvation. So Jesus' prophecy of his resurrection benefited his disciples, really and truly for all of us, after the fact. When God enabled them to remember and he granted them understanding that they might believe in the reasons for the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so let's look at this text. Let's work through uh, the beginning portion of verse 21. We read there at the very start, from that time. That is, following the time uh, of Jesus, con- uh, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, uh, following the time of him declaring that uh, Hades shall not prevail against the church, following the time of Jesus talking about giving these keys of the means of grace to his church for her work in the world, Jesus then tells them this prophecy from that time. And I want us to note that Jesus' announcement to his disciples of his impending death and resurrection was given to them precisely when the Father had intended. Not one moment too soon, not one moment too late. For the Father had revealed to Peter at the right moment the true identity of Jesus in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. However, Jesus had then told Peter and all the other disciples back in Matthew 16.20 the time had not yet come for them to identify Jesus publicly as the Christ. Events are unfolding in the timing of God. God gives this revelation to Peter. And Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But then he concludes saying, don't yet go forth and tell people I am the Christ. It is not yet the time for that. But then also this revelation of his impending death and resurrection was given at the precise time. The time would later come for Jesus to die and be raised again. But everything was being fulfilled in its own timing, according to the eternal plan of God. In Ecclesiastes 3.1, it says there is an appointed time for everything. There is a time for every event under heaven. And so from this time, Jesus begins to reveal to his disciples that he must go to the cross and be raised again on the third day. There is an appointed time for everything under heaven. And indeed, all of Jesus' life had been ordained by God from all eternity so that the event of his death and resurrection was being fulfilled in the fullness of time. And the declaration, the prophecy he was given to that, that he was giving to his men was from that time. It was a, the perfect time. It's all of Jesus' life. And Paul wrote this about Jesus' life, his entire life and ministry in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5. It says there, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. If someone could get me a paper towel or something, the salt is dripping into my eyes and it's stinging. So it's the fullness of time. When the fullness of time came, God sends the Son. When the fullness of time came, He came to redeem those who were under the law. And in the fullness of time, from that time onward, Jesus began to reveal that He must go to the cross, be crucified, be raised again from the third day. Matthew, I think that first mic works better. We're going to have to change that out. everything ordained by God. I apologize, guys, about this.
Check. There we go. Is that better? Now that sweat is not pouring into my eyes and my microphone not crackling, let's continue. So everything is happening in the fullness of time. The announcement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the prophecy that he was going to be crucified and, 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 and raised on the third day. It's all being fulfilled in the fullness of time. From that time. This indicates that this is not only the right time, but the first time that Jesus made this announcement. And it would not be the last time that he made this announcement to his disciples before the cross and the resurrection. And I want to give you some further examples of how Jesus continued to speak to his disciples as the cross drew nearer and nearer of this impending death and this impending resurrection. And there are times when this prophecy would expand uh, as he spoke to these men and he continued to explain to them his mission. An understanding they would not grasp fully until after his death and resurrection. Uh, the next example that we find in the Gospel of Matthew, after this announcement in Matthew 16, that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer, to die, and to be raised, the next announcement took place at the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew chapter 17, coming down from the mountain, Jesus spoke in verse 12, So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. This is an anticipated suffering. That's a second reference announced in that case to Peter and James and John. A third announcement in prophecy by Jesus that he was headed to death and resurrection we can find in Matthew 17 verses 22 to 23. There Jesus again is gathering with his disciples and he, he gives them this prophecy. While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day and they were deeply grieved. So they're, they're grasping some concept of suffering and death and it's producing a, a grief in their heart but it's not an understanding that will bring them to a full grasp of Jesus' mission until after the Spirit is poured out. So again and again throughout Matthew Jesus keeps giving the same basic message to his men. In fact, right before they actually went up to Jerusalem, Jesus again gives this announcement in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 19. And notice in this case with this prophetic uh, anticipation of the cross and resurrection, how Jesus expands the information quite a bit. So we read these words, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So Jesus keeps announcing this to his men over and over again. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be raised again on the third day. And then one more time, once they have arrived in Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover, after a time of Jesus' teaching, we read these words in Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2, when Jesus had finished all those words, when he had finished this session of teaching, he then said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. 
is very clear. However, there were two more illustrations of Jesus' impending death where he shows his disciples that he must die and be raised again. The first picture of his impending death and resurrection is with Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. As she anoints Jesus' hair with costly perfume, a, a perfume that Mark tells us was worth well over 300 denarii. That's a year's wages. But by the way, this perfume was contained, the text says, in an alabaster vial, which is a kind of fine marble that comes from Egypt. So even the vial itself was expensive. Not as expensive as the perfume within it, but this was an expensive gift to pour this on Jesus' head. And when Mary did this, the disciples became indignant and they reasoned in their minds that this perfume could have been sold and given to the poor. And notice Jesus' response then in Matthew 26, verse 10. Jesus actually rebukes his disciples. Listen carefully to what he includes in the rebuke. Again, prophecy regarding his impending work. But Jesus, aware of this, aware that his disciples were grumbling that this perfume could have been sold and given to the poor, the money, he says, aware of this, why do you bother this woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured out the perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Do you hear that? And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken in memory of her. So a glorious illustration that points to Jesus being anointed for death. The second great picture before the cross and the resurrection that points to his work was of course the Lord's Supper. Listen for the theological explanation of Jesus here for his death. And I, I think this is critical because this is the first time that he combines the announcement of his death and resurrection with the theological reason for it. Okay, so this is critical. So, Lord's Supper, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. And then listen to the reason why he does this. He says, For this is my blood of the covenant. That's the covenant, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Did you catch that? That's absolutely critical. So Jesus has been slowly unfolding before his disciples this prophetic announcement along with illustrations pointing to his death and his resurrection. But now with this final announcement in the Lord's Supper, he says, this death of mine is for the forgiveness of sins. This shedding of my blood is so that my people might be forgiven. In fact, when did the Lord's Supper take place? The first Lord's Supper. During the Passover. And the whole entire Passover is a picture of the death of Messiah for sin. 
Again, Jesus is given to his men, and then to us as well through their writing, this prophecy, and he's given these signs in part so that we might know that Jesus' death and resurrection was not only the means for our salvation, but God's purpose all along from all eternity. You know, because there are some Christians who believe that Jesus' real mission was to deliver national Israel at that time. And to deliver them in response to nationwide faith in Messiah. But things did not go as planned. They didn't unfold as God purposed. And so Jesus changed the plans. And instead of, uh, of just setting up his kingdom there in Israel at that time, he set aside his plans for Israel and turned instead to the Gentiles. That is an Arminian view of the work of Christ. No, this was not plan B. This was plan A. This is the plan. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die for sin. Jesus came to be raised again on the third day unto life that his people might know everlasting life. This is no plan B. This is no afterthought. This is the plan. These same people will often also suggest that God had intended the Garden of Eden to last forever, but those plans fell through, and so the cross is some kind of plan B rescue attempt to try to return the world to the Garden of Eden. Again, I would say to you, no. Listen, a new heaven and a new earth filled with redeemed people serving a loving and victorious Savior. A people who know, not only by knowledge, but personal experience, God's sovereign love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's long-suffering, the amazing work of a Savior who died for them. A plan which has been established by God from all eternity. That people is an infinitely greater people than Adam was in his innocence before the fall. The fall in the garden was no shock to God. It was part of the plan. The rejection of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus was no surprise to God. It was a part of the one single plan. The plan to produce a redeemed people is infinitely better than the Garden of Eden. A people who forever will worship the true and living God through Christ in the Spirit for saving their souls from an eternal hell, for redeeming undeserving, unworthy rebels from the justice they deserved by the most glorious gift ever given in the universe, the gift of the Son. No, God has one eternal plan and one plan for human history. A plan which centered upon the cross and the resurrection and the redemption of a people for his eternal glory and their blessing. That's the one plan, the one eternal covenant between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his redeemed people need to know this. 
And here Jesus is beginning in a, in a clear way to unfold for his men the truth, a reality that they would come later to understand by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had come to give his life a ransom for sinners. And so Jesus is here beginning to unfold this one mission of redemption, a, a truth which they would later understand more clearly, a truth which would then be laid out for us in the Scriptures. Yes, it is prophesied in the old, both the death and the resurrection, but it is only in the fullness of the revelation of the work of Christ and in the work of the Spirit giving us understanding that we grasp the wonder, the reality, the greatness of this redemptive plan. So the Christ was no plan B. It was no afterthought. It is no parenthesis. It was precisely what God had ordained, and it stands as the pinnacle of all of human history. All of eternity revolves around the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. All history, all universe turns on this great event. Now let's begin to look at Jesus' suffering. And we won't conclude all of that this morning. This will move us on into next week. But let's look at what Jesus began to reveal to his disciples. We, we, we saw very clearly that this was the fullness of time for this revelation to be given to his men and how that revelation was expanded throughout Jesus' ministry and later understood by these men. At that time, he reveals this Prophecy, But what is the prophecy? Well, again, look at verses 21 to 23. 23. This is what Jesus revealed. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he, in Mark 8, 31, adds, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from and be rejected by, that's also Mark, the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So, to discover what Jesus is revealing to his men, let's consider the component elements of the prophecy itself. First, let's look together at the one who is suffering. Right? This is a, a timely pronouncement prophecy of his death and resurrection. But, but who precisely is it that is going to suffer and be killed and be raised up on the third day? Notice what Jesus says. And this is combining... Both Matthew's account in Mark 8.31, Jesus says this, that he, the Son of Man, he, the Son of Man, is going to, to suffer, to die. He's the one who will have to endure this suffering. This is his mission, the Son of Man, to fulfill. Son of Man. Why is this critical to his mission of the cross and the resurrection? But 84 times, 84 times, Jesus refers to himself in the scriptures as Son of Man in the four Gospels. 28 of those times are in the Gospel of Matthew. The, the most occurrences of Jesus referring to himself as the, the Son of Man is, is in this Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the, the Gospel written largely to the Jews. And so this is a critical reference for the Jewish people and all of us, the, the Son of Man, He has a redemptive mission. He is 
the only Savior, listen to this, who can intervene as a substitute for fallen sinners. Why? Because he had to be fully God and fully man. Remember Peter's revelation? You are the son of God. That's his divinity. Now Jesus refers to himself as the son of Man, that's his humanity. This is the only qualified Savior who could suffer and die for his people on their behalf, in their place. The theological term for this work of the Lord Jesus is his substitutionary atonement. The the word atonement literally means it refers to a satisfactory payment of a debt which is owed. This is the word atonement. To pay a debt that is owed in a satisfactory manner. That's the word atonement. And then the theological term substitutionary is also added to this concept of atonement. It is the idea of one who makes a payment on behalf of someone else or someone who stands on behalf of someone else. So this is a substitutionary atoning work of Jesus. Jesus pays the sin debt of his people on their behalf on the cross. This is why we need one who is both God and man. A God-man to pay our debt. Now, you remember again that Peter's confession in Matthew 16 verse 16 was that he was the eternal Son of God come in human flesh. You are the Son of the living God. And we need a divine Savior. We need a Savior who is God in the flesh. And why do we need a divine Savior? Well, there are many reasons why we need to see the divinity of the Father and the Lord Jesus. Philip tells us in John 14, 9, that he who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. And so, by being God come in human flesh... He does reveal, reveal the Father to us. Jesus said in John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. To see the Father in the Son is one of the reasons for the Incarnation. For, Colossians 2.9 says, In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So, so Jesus coming in an incarnate state as God the Son in human form shows us the Father. We need a divine Savior. We also needed a divine Savior who would speak to us and do before us the perfect will of the Father. We need this in a divine Savior. In John chapter 8, verse 28, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me. Everything I do, everything I say is from the Father. So Jesus came revealing the Father. All the fullness of deity is is in Him. To see Him is to know the Father. And what He does and what He speaks represents the Father. But we also need a divine Savior who is also infinite and eternally holy and worthy and able in a moment of time on the cross to pay an eternal and infinite sin debt which satisfies God's holy justice. We need that kind of a Savior. For we owe an infinite debt to God. It is an infinite debt debt to an eternally holy God 
This right hell needs to be forever, by the way. Because it takes a sinner forever suffering in hell toward paying off their sin debt, and you can't do that. You'll never pay it off, which is why hell is forever. But what we could not do in our wicked, limited human self, God the Son, an infinitely holy and eternal Savior, could do this by suffering for a moment of time, bearing the sins of his people, to pay an infinite sin debt upon the cross so that Jesus declared at the end of his suffering, it is what? Finished. This is why your only hope is to trust Christ as Savior. You can't work your way into the kingdom of heaven. You can't partially work your way into the kingdom of heaven. It's not the work of Jesus plus your works. It's all of Jesus. For only Jesus' work is of infinite and eternal value. And every single sin we commit, small or great, in word, thought, deed, or motive, every sin we commit is in and of itself an infinite debt owed to God. And you cannot pay that debt. You are not holy enough. You are not eternal. You are not of infinite value. You yourself can do nothing to pay for, atone for, to do enough good works for in this lifetime, enough to pay off a single debt before God. Not even the tiniest fraction of the smallest sin you have ever committed in all your life can you pay for. And yet Jesus... In those hours upon the cross, Colossians tells us, literally bearing the weight of his people, the sins of his people on the cross, Jesus is able to pay all of the sin debt of everyone who would ever believe in full. Because of who he is. Because he is God come in human flesh. He paid our sin debt on our behalf because he's God. And Peter said, you are the son of God. We need a divine savior. But here Jesus Jesus says, the son of man is going to Jerusalem to suffer and die and be raised again on the third day because we also need our Savior to be fully human except for sin so that he could represent us to God so that he could stand in our place on our behalf as an acceptable substitute and a representative for his people. We needed a Savior who could perfectly obey all the will of the Father through his holy life that he lived so that he might obey the law perfectly on our behalf so that then his righteous life could be credited to our account so that we might be covered and cloaked in his holy perfection. We also needed a Savior who could take our place on the cross in death and bear in his own body our sin to pay our sin debt in a moment of time. So he needed to be human to represent us to God and he needed to be divine to pay an infinite debt. And on the cross, Paul writes in Colossians 2.14 that he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
We needed this one who is both God and man, the God-man, to pay our sin debt, to represent God to us and us to God, to pay a debt only God could pay in his infinite value, worth, and holiness, and to represent us who are sinners by being fully human except for sin. This is why the cross work of Christ is called a substitutionary atonement. It is a substitutionary death. His death for ours in our place. The Bible is very clear, by the way, that all of God's redeemed people are saved by the substitutionary work of Jesus. Going back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, it says this of Messiah, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Substitutionary Atonement, paying the debt in full by means of a substitute. And then we read in Isaiah 53, verse 12, it says of Messiah there that he was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted among the sinners, even though himself was no sinner. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He is counted as our representative among us. But he is the one who bore our sin and paid our sin debt. He intercedes for the transgressors. Listen to Peter, as Peter writes of the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus in 1 Peter 2.24. And here he also makes a direct reference to Isaiah 53, which we just cited. Peter writes of Jesus, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we were healed. Now, what were the words that were said in the baptistry? with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Death to sin, resurrection unto newness of life. So that the waters of baptism picture the work of Jesus in his death for sin and his life, his resurrection life, so that we might receive eternal life. So that if you are, and when you are in Christ, his death becomes your death and his life becomes your life. Substitutionary atonement. Another verse that talks about the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus is in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Listen very carefully for this concept of him dying on our behalf. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And of course... There's that crucial text in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is maybe one of my most oft-referenced verses in all of Scripture. It says there that He, the Father, made Him, the Son, who knew no sin, sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Our sin to Christ, Christ's righteousness credited to our account. You guys remember, we've talked about this many times. What's the point of Jesus' 30 years of life and ministry? 
yes, we've already seen this morning, to show us the Father and to speak to us on behalf of the Father, but also to live the life that you and I couldn't live. To live a perfect life in perfect obedience to the Father in all his required will. To live the life we should have lived. And then he went to the cross and he paid the sin's debt for the life we did live. So here's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is saying on the cross. When you trust in Jesus as your Savior, on the cross, Jesus was treated by the Father as if he lived your life. So that he could then treat you as if you lived his life. It's a great exchange. Our sin to Christ, Christ's righteousness to us. Substitution. The gospel hinges on the truth of substitution in our place, on our behalf, so that we might receive his righteousness and he might receive our sin and pay our sin debt. Again, the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus, and there are many verses we could look at, but the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 9.28, that Jesus was, quote, offered once to bear the sins of many, unquote. So we've looked at the timely announcement, the timeliness of the prophecy which Jesus repeated again and again throughout his ministry in order to prepare his men, a preparation which really came to full realization after the fact of his death and resurrection by the the understanding of the Spirit. And it is that truth also revealed to us in the Scriptures whereby we come to know the mission and work of Messiah. We see Jesus telling his men in the prophecy itself that he is the one who will suffer and he is the Son of Man. Peter, the Son of God. Jesus, I'm the Son of Man. I must go to the cross to suffer on behalf of my people as God to do what they could never do as man to stand in their place. Second in his prophecy, as far as what he actually revealed, I want us to close by looking at the location of Jesus' suffering. Look what he says there. He says, the Son of Man must go where? To Jerusalem. Now, why is the location important in this prophecy of Jesus to his men? Why did Jesus have to go to Jerusalem? Well, in part because in Scripture, this is revealed to us as the capital city of the people of Israel. And even after the nation was divided under King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, it remained the capital city of Judah as well. And throughout the scriptures, the city of Jerusalem is often referred to as the holy city. That is, the city set apart by God and for God. In fact, listen to how Isaiah the prophet writes as God speaks to Israel and and even rebukes Israel in Isaiah 48, 1 and 2. But listen to how he rebukes Israel. Listen to the words he uses related to the city of Jerusalem. He says, God does, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who come forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of Yahweh and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness, for they call themselves after the name of the holy city. Part of the great identity for the Jewish man or woman was their identity with the city of Jerusalem. That's where the temple was built. That was the center of worship for the people of Israel. 
But we also know from Scripture that not only is this the holy city, but this city in the form of the new Jerusalem is key to Jesus' future reign on the earth when he comes in his glory, when he is found present in the midst of that city, his presence will make the center of that new city, the new Jerusalem, the holy of holies, right? It's interesting, when you have the tabernacle and the temple, there is that inner room called the holy of holies, and the holy of holies represents what? The immediate holy presence of God, and it is the work of the Lord Jesus Jesus Christ, where in the veil between the most holy place and the holy place is torn open. The veil is a picture of his death, which was which was shredded and killed, and he was crucified for our sins, and his death tore open the veil so that we could enter into the Holy of Holies, the, the immediate presence of the true and living God. And when the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven, the scriptures are very clear to tell us that in the New Jerusalem there is no temple. It says Jesus and his people are that temple. At the center of the new Jerusalem, Jesus will reign eternally. So how does this all tie together to Jesus' prophecy? Well, do you remember what happened when Jesus had approached the city of Jerusalem the week that led to his crucifixion? Do you remember what happened as he came into the city? He entered the city of Jerusalem the week of his crucifixion with a what? A triumphal entry. He came mounted on a coal, the full, uh, a colt, the foal of a donkey, which was at that time the royal mount of kings. It's a humble mount. He comes mounted as a king. And this entry into Jerusalem, this triumphal entry, the, the fulfillment of this is described in Isaiah 62.11, which is a, a prophecy of Messiah. It says of Messiah there, as he enters Jerusalem, Behold, Yahweh has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. He's entering Jerusalem, and he, he says in this prophecy to his prophecy to his disciples, The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. And in Zechariah 9.9, we read another prophecy of this entry, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It says there, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He enters as a king into Jerusalem. And then Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quotes this very prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 over in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 5, where he writes of Jesus' triumphal entry. We read there that the people of Jerusalem spread their coats and their palm branches on the ground before Jesus as they cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And that's one of Jesus' kingly titles, remember? And they say this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And that last part is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 28. So listen to this. Why must he go to Jerusalem? Listen, he enters the city of Jerusalem 
at the beginning of the Passion Week, heralded by the people as their king, and he is king, the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. But what happens at the end of that week after entering Jerusalem? They cast him outside of the city in order to crucify him because the holy city of Jerusalem is regarded as holy unto the Lord and that which was regarded as unholy was to be cast outside of the city. For example, in Leviticus chapter 4, when a a bull was offered for the sins of the people in the temple, after that fact, it was then to be taken and cast outside the camp. Likewise, whenever someone was ceremonially unclean with leprosy, they were to be cast outside the camp. Numbers 5 verses 1 to 4. Also, if someone blasphemed God and willfully violated the law of God. We read in Numbers 15, verses 30 to 32, that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of Yahweh. He has broken the commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. And then just a couple of verses later, there in Numbers 15, some guy decides he's going to go gather firewood on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath. And listen to what is then said in verse 35 of Numbers 15. Then the word of Yahweh said to Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. Outside the camp. This is for the unclean. This is for the rebel. This is for the blasphemer. Throw him outside of the city and kill him. And so, Jesus announcing to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Jesus having arrived in Jerusalem at the beginning of the week as a triumphal king, at the end of the week, Jesus is cast outside the city as some unclean, lawless blasphemer. And here is what is wondrous regarding the city of Jerusalem. For while he was cast out of this earthly city of Jerusalem as an unclean, lawless blasphemer, when Jesus comes again, he will come back to Zion, the mount upon which Jerusalem is built, and he will come with the new Jerusalem in which he will indeed reign as king forever. He entered the earthly Jerusalem as a king and was cast out as unclean. He will come again with the new Jerusalem, where he will reign eternally as king. And he will be the one to cast out his enemies. Isn't that beautiful? I must go to Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem, the holy city, and be cast out as unclean and be killed. But when he comes again with the new Jerusalem where he reigns, he will cast out his enemy into hell. And he is coming again. But for now, Jesus had to suffer for his people. He says, at the perfect timing to his disciples, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. Well, next week we'll look at what takes place in that suffering. We'll see Peter's 
objection in, in, in Jesus' rebuke of Peter. But I want to just close with some words of application, some thoughts of direct application for both doctrine and life for those of you who are in Christ from our text. First of all, as those who are living in the midst of a lost world that is plunging further and further into darkness and evil as it careens ever faster towards hell, surely we have every reason to rejoice with joy unspeakable and hope unimaginable that our Savior is building His church, He is growing His church, the gates of Hades shall not overpower it, and that He has laid down His life as God's eternal plan in order to rescue his people through his substitutionary death and resurrection, and that he is announcing his plan to his people before the fact, and that Jesus was and is the faithful son who in love was willing to lay his life down to bear the sins of his people that God might be satisfied in his holy wrath in order to redeem his people from their sins. My dear beloved, if you cannot rejoice in the promise of Christ which he fulfilled, something is desperately wrong. Do you rejoice in this work of Christ on your behalf? Jesus said in Luke 10.20, rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven, that is for his people. Rejoice if you can confess with Peter these words in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. You see, this announcement that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and be killed through his atoning work is an announcement of what he would do in you who are Christ's. You have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I, says Paul, who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's substitutionary atonement again. He died on my behalf, and in Christ I die to my old self. And he was raised again so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. Do you realize that Jesus' prophecy is a pronouncement of love toward you who are in Christ? He knew where he was going. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And be raised again on the third day. If you are in Christ, that prophecy is a prophecy of your salvation through the work of Christ. Rejoice then that the Father has revealed himself to you through his Son. That like with these men, he has revealed to you the mission and purpose of Christ to give himself as a sacrifice for your salvation. Rejoice that Jesus is that faithful Son who with resolve, knowing where he was headed, set his face toward Jerusalem. He did not turn to the left or to the right. He was willing to be cursed and mocked and murdered so that you who are his could have eternal life. Rejoice and live daily in thanksgiving and worship for a Savior who has granted to you such undeserving grace and mercy, a God who has demonstrated to you such love 
as Paul explains in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's substitution. There's atonement. And love this life to proclaim this good news of Jesus Christ. To herald it to the lost. For, listen, if you're in Christ, if you truly understand in some measure by the grace of God the the defiance, the ugliness and ruin of sin, even your own sin, if you have come to grasp in some measure the horrors of hell, the, the holy prison of God, if you truly long to see people delivered from unbelief, error, and evil, if you yearn for them to be eternally blessed, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, for them to have life and to have it more abundantly, if you have compassion and an understanding of love which God has poured out upon you who are in the Lord Jesus Christ and has poured out upon you all of heaven's blessings when you deserve hell, if you grasp all these things and understand the power of the gospel, the gospel which the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you grasp these things and understand the power of the gospel to save, the power of God to save, you will not be ashamed of this gospel, but you will pray for boldness and clarity and an open door for this message that you might have an answer or give an answer for the hope that lies within you, that you might preach Christ crucified and raised, that by the grace of God, men and women might be saved. If you have heard the words of Christ contained in seed form in this prophecy, it ought to cause you to rejoice uh, regarding his work on your behalf. It ought to cause you to preach the message of this gospel. And I would say lastly, if you are here, you have not yet called upon the name of the Lord Jesus. You have not yet entrusted yourself to him and his work on your behalf. If indeed you are among his chosen people, if you have not entrusted yourself unto him, in his death for sin, in his resurrection, would you, and I would beg with you, plead with you, would you call upon the name of the Lord? Would you be reconciled to God by turning from your sin in mourning and repentance and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and his suffering and his death and his resurrection on behalf of his people so that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, in the seed form of this prophecy, this early prophecy, as he begins to speak plainly to his disciples about where he was headed and why, is ultimately the heart of the gospel message. This is why he came, to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for an opportunity to, again, open the scriptures and hear this simple and yet plain prophecy of Jesus as he begins to unfold for his men and us through the scriptures the purpose of God unfolding in his life, a mission to which he was faithful and committed as he set himself boldly toward Jerusalem, as he entered as a king but was cast out as a criminal. And yet we rejoice that through that work of being treated as a criminal, he did that on behalf of his people. That we might receive all of heaven's blessings. That we might enjoy you eternally in fellowship. Knowing that he will come again as not the king cast out, but as the king at the very center of the new Jerusalem. And 
that he and his people are the temple. We are the pillars in that temple, John writes. And he is the one who will cast out his enemies into an eternal hell. May we rejoice in the work of Christ for all who are yours. May we proclaim that message to the lost. And may the lost, by your grace and power, entrust themselves to this Savior who suffered and died for sinners and was raised unto eternal life on behalf of his people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.